Okay, so we're starting uh, part three of uh, on the mode of existence of technical objects. Um, so we finished part two last time. We had a, a little bit of a shorter session, um, but uh, part three is uh, exciting for me. This is my favorite part of the book. Um, I think the first part is the one that gets the most attention uh, in the secondary literature. Um, the the notion of the concretization of a technical object is something that's drawn a lot of attention. But um, this third part is a sort of anthropological part, a philosophical anthropology. Um, so it looks at the relation uh, where where tech, the technical reality fits in with the human relation to the world as a whole. Um, and gives a sort of genesis of uh, technical existence in in the relation to the human relation to the world as a whole. Um, so we have um, a little introduction, a few pages long, and then we have two chapters in this part, um, and then subsections in those chapters. So we'll see how far we get through today, I guess. Um, hopefully, we can finish the introduction and get into the, the first chapter. Yeah, so I'll start with the beginning of the introduction, and then we can just go around with that. The existence of technical objects and the conditions of their genesis pose a question for philosophical thought, which it cannot resolve through the simple consideration of technical objects themselves. What is the sense of the genesis of technical objects with respect to the whole of thought, of man's existence, and of his manner of being in the world? The fact that there is an organic aspect of thought and of the, uh, sorry, and of uh, the mode of being in the world obliges one to assume that the genesis of technical objects have repercussions on other human productions, on the attitude man has toward the world. But this is only a lateral and very imperfect way of posing the problem that the manifestation of technical objects leads us to confront as a reality that is subject to genesis and whose genuine essence resides only in the lines of this genesis. Indeed, nothing proves that we have here that what we have here is an independent reality which is to say that te the technical object taken as a definite mode of existence. So here he's going beyond. Uh, so in the first two parts, he's, he's been looking at the ontology of technical, technical objects themselves. Um, but now he's going to be going, he's going to go beyond just looking at the technical object itself, but looking at it in relation to a human being. Um, so, um, he wants to, so he, he poses the idea of an organic aspect um, of thought and of the mode of being in the world. Um, so uh, this, is, this is something I think that we've seen a little bit of, I'm, I'm not sure if this connection is um, correct or not, but he, he's pointed to, for example, the role of uh, the living being in setting up um, technical ensembles um, and the dependence of a technical ensemble on the living being. Um, but he, he describes this as being um, an inadequate way of approaching technical reality as a whole. Uh, so he's going to, in the rest of this introduction, explain a little bit why that's inadequate. And take over the next paragraph, if that's okay. Uh, there was just one other thing I wanted to note, which is this, this uh, term uh, being in the world. Um, which is a you know a, a classic Heideggerian phrase, um, and I'm not sure whether Simondon is drawing specifically on Heidegger here um, with that term, um, but it would be interesting to um, I guess compare to see um, 
what use Simondon makes of that term compared to Heidegger um, and and determine whether or not there's a, a sort of direct um, affiliation there. Right. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't even really notice that. It's so sneaky. What's in there? Um, the, I, of course, that Heidegger would insist on the finitude of determinate being, and and he would call being in the world Dasein, correct? I'm I'm kind of rusty with my Heidegger. Right, being in the world, uh, if I remember correctly, is one of the existentials, one of the um, characteristics of Dasein, um, one, sort of the, the the essential characteristic of Dasein. Um, um, so. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, I'm also a little bit rusty with Heidegger, um, but uh, yeah, it would be it would be interesting to make that comparison for someone who uh, you know knows Heidegger a little bit better than I do. Yeah, I did. I I forgot who the author was, but I saw a, a work that was um, that was comparing Heidegger and Simondon as well, which I guess would make sense since Heidegger is famous for um, his his philosophy of technology perspectives. And also the, that Simondon uh, was a student of Merleau-Ponty, right? And so Merleau-Ponty is obviously is kind of like pushing forward Heidegger's uh, phenomenology into more of a like a fleshed phenomenology or like a, a more sort of a field-like phenomenology, which winds up being very similar to what Simondon comes up with in terms of uh, in terms of uh, like a, a relationship of a of a living being in the world. Right. Yeah. That, um, that's probably the the sort of line through which or, or lineage that through which he gets the Heideggerian uh, terms, uh, you know, I would guess probably through Melanchthon. Um, um, but, uh, you know, this is sort of typical of Simondon that he, he very rarely cites secondary sources. Um, so we have to sort of guess what he's referring to sometimes, uh, or if he's making a, a specific allusion to another author, like it, it's never um, clearly cited, unfortunately. Um, so it makes makes more work for us. More fun for us. More places to plow in our own opinions in, in, in the absence of historical evidence. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, it gives room for scholarship to, uh, you know, trace some of these sources as well. But uh, um, it would be nice to... Uh, it's not good citation practice, I would say, to just uh, leave it to the reader to uh, to try to figure out what you're alluding to. Okay, I think we can uh, go on to the next paragraph, 61, if you'd like to read. Sure. If the mode of existence is definite because it derives from a genesis, then this genesis that engenders objects is perhaps not only the genesis of objects, or even the genesis of technical reality, perhaps it originates even further back and constitutes a limited aspect of a larger process and continues perhaps to engender other realities after having led to the appearance of technical objects. It is thus the genesis of all of technicity that needs to be understood, that of objects and that of non-objectified realities, and the entire genesis implicating man in the world, of which the genesis of technicity is perhaps only a small part shouldered and balanced by other genesis that are prior, posterior, or complementary, and correlative with that of technical objects. All right, so this is um, drawing on, he uh, he's gonna make the reference in the next uh, paragraph, I think, uh, or fairly soon, drawing on his, uh, his other work, the uh, information in the light of uh, 
or sorry, individuation in the light of the notions of uh, form and information. Um, so uh, we read the uh, introduction to that work um, a few months ago when we started this group. Um, but the, the key idea here is the idea of a, a genesis as um, a process of becoming that produces an object or an individual, um, as well as um, a non-individuated non -individuated, um, surrounding or, or milieu. Um, so he's the hypothesis that he's presenting here, which he's going to, um, I guess, defend over the course of this part of the book, is um, the, the hypothesis that um, technical reality is um, is the result of uh, such a genesis. So it's um, uh, it's there's a, a process of genesis that produces technical reality, but also something um, alongside of technical reality that has plays the role of uh, a milieu or a, a non-individuated surrounding uh, outside of technical reality. Um, so that's um, sort of the big picture of what he's going to do, and he's going to um, fill in the details a little bit more uh, throughout this introduction. A phrase comes to my mind uh, from the other book. I'm not sure if I remember correctly, but uh, he uses this, uh, what I take to uh, be a catchword for him, a monism uh, of Genesis. It's not a dualism, but a monism of Genesis particularly. Uh, so earlier he mentioned modes of existence among them, uh, technical objects being one of them, or technicity being one of them. And it makes sense that um, everything is to be considered in its genesis, and uh, it is only on this level that we can talk about a monism. Right, I don't remember that exact phrase from the other book, but um, it, it does, I think, correctly characterize his uh, um, his approach here. So when he wants to do, uh, so I think when he does ontology, what he takes the ontology to mean is giving a genesis of, of uh, an object or a, a certain mode of existence. So um, yeah, ontology and genesis are, are sort of coordinate concepts for him. Um, so to, to present, uh, to do ontology is to present the essence of something as um, a genesis. So technical reality, uh, you, you specify the ontology of technical reality by indicating the genesis of technical reality. Yeah, I think I think he's about to go into um, the, that aforementioned book in the next couple paragraphs, if we want to continue. Yeah, so uh, I think we can read probably the next two short paragraphs together, um, if someone would like to pick that up. I could go, if you like. Sure, go ahead. Okay. Uh, we therefore need to move toward a generalized genetic interpretation of the relation between man and the world in order to grasp the philosophical importance of the existence of technical objects. The very notion of genesis, however, deserves to be made more precise. The word genesis is taken here in the sense defined in the study on individuation in the light of the notions of form and of information as the process of individuation in its generality. There is genesis when the coming into being of a system of a primitively oversaturated reality, rich in potential, greater than unity and harboring an internal incompatibility constitutes for this system the discovery of compatibility 
a resolution through the advent of structure. This structuration is the advent of an organization that is the basis of an equilibrium of metastability. Such genesis opposes itself to the degradation of the potential energies contained in a system through the passage to a stable state from which transformation is no longer possible. Right, so this is like a super condensed um, uh, summary of, of his other book, basically in one paragraph, which uh, probably a little bit dense um, for, for those who haven't read the other book, um, but we did read the introduction, so we have at least some familiarity with some of these concepts. Um, and, and a lot of them sort of come, ba come back in other works that he's written as well that we've come across. Um, but it's also noteworthy that uh, the individuation book was not published at the time he was writing this. Um, so that's so. Um, this the the two books were his uh, his two theses for um, the doctoral thesis. There was a you had to do a major thesis and a minor thesis, and so the individuation book was the major thesis, and the technical objects book was the minor thesis. Um, but he's uh, basically referring to his own work as if the reader would have read it, even though it hadn't been published yet at the time, which is kind of strange. And actually, the uh, the full book, uh, so the book, the individuation book was published. The first um, half of it or so was published in uh, 1962, I think, uh, in uh, in the 60s anyway, a few years after this book comes out. But the second part. Uh, or the second half was not published until 1989, um, uh, and then the full, the, the whole thing together was, I think, was published in uh, 2004 or something like that. So you know, long after his death. So he's referring to a book that would not actually be completely uh, published as a whole until after his death, which is uh, uh, again a little bit of a strange um, approach to just sort of assume that the reader would know this. Are those the the original publication dates or the 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 translation, the translations? Uh, yeah, those are the original publication dates in in French. Um, oh wow! Yeah, um, there were, um, I think there were some issues with. Um, well, I think it maybe shows that he was a little more optimistic about publication. That he assumed that um, he would be able to publish his his thesis without too much trouble. Um, but uh, he, I guess, had faced more difficulty with publication than he anticipated. But uh, to, get, to get to the uh, that sort of conceptual development that he's um, sketching in this paragraph, uh, so the, the, the general idea is of individuation that starts from a, um, a, a system that is um, supersaturated um, and he described it as um, greater than identity so it, it doesn't have um, or greater than unity sorry um, it, it uh, doesn't follow the principle of non-contradiction um, it's uh, um, or the, the principle of the excluded middle um, so it's a, a supersaturated state and then that system um, individuates uh, so part of it becomes an individual and part of it becomes um, the surrounding milieu, um, and he, he's distinguishing this from uh, um, the process of uh, degradation of, of potential energies. So when a system undergoes uh, a degradation process, it, it loses that potential energy and turns to a stable state from which work can't be extracted. 
Um, so that's a, he wants to make that distinction very clear. Um, so the individuation always results in a metastable state that still retains potential. Hmm. Yeah, that that it is kind of dense. I mostly can make sense of it, but I'm still kind of wrapping my head around it, having not not read really much uh, or, at any, or any rather of the individuation text. So th this is probably very, uh, a helpful bit for me then, because yeah, I was kind of in the in the dark about about these these ideas until this paragraph. So all right, and. Uh... Um, Burka has posted in the um, in the the chat here the the link to the text about the the monism uh, the, or the genetic monism. Um, yeah, so that's that's helpful. Um, I'll have to um, take a look at the that paragraph um, after we're done today um, to refresh my memory of that. Just to just to as a short clarification question. Um, the kind of oversaturation of reality that he points out in, in this paragraph. Um, you, you, made, you made the remark that it was related to a, a kind of logical overdetermination. Is it where lo uh, logical rules of classical logic would not be in comportment with it? Is this, is this correct in, in the interpretation? Yeah, that's right. He uh, he characterizes this pre-individual state as um, not following the the rule of the excluded middle, um, and I, I think non-contradiction as well. Um, I'd have to check that uh, again. Um, but the idea is that um, a, a sort of logically classical um, set of states would be the result of the individuation process, and rather than sort of uh, being presupposed by the process of individuation. So um, what exists before that individuation, um, therefore, doesn't follow the the um, classical rules of logic. Wow. Oh, okay. So I'm going to have to put in a notch of like logical pluralism as far as Simundin goes as well, then, um, among the many other characteristics he seems to have. Yeah, it's um, it's not something that he develops a lot in the other book. It's he sort of um, makes the note in passing, um, or not quite in passing, I guess. But uh, it's not um, one of the sort of central concepts of of his book. Um, but he, uh, yeah, he does um, characterize uh, classical logic as being a, a sort of subdomain ontologically, uh, or or corresponding um, to an ontological subdomain of the individuated, um, whereas um, uh, being as a whole um, is uh, includes indiv individuated and non-individuated realities. Okay, so I think we can go on to the next paragraph. Um, so I'll read it. It's a little bit long. The general hypothesis we are making about the sense of, of the coming into being of man's relation with the world consists in considering the whole l'ensemble formed by man in the world as a system. This hypothesis, however, is not limited to the affirmation that man and the world form a vital system comprising the living thing in its milieu. Evolution could indeed be considered an adaptation, i.e. a quest for a stable equilibrium of the system through a reduction of the gap between the living thing and the milieu. The notion of adaptation, however, together with the notion of function and the functional finality to which it is linked, would lead us to see the coming into being of the relation between man and the world as tending toward a state of stable equilibrium which does not appear to be correct in man's case, perhaps no more than it is for any living being. 
If one wanted to preserve a vitalist foundation for this hypothesis of genetic coming into being, then one could call upon the notion of élan vital presented by Bergson. And indeed, this notion is excellent for demonstrating what is lacking in the notion of adaptation in order for it to enable an interpretation of the coming into being of life, devenir vital, but it is not compatible with it. And an antagonism without possible mediation subsists between adaptation and the élan vital. It seems that these two opposed notions as the couple they form can be, can be replaced by the notion of the individuation of oversaturated systems, conceived as successive resolutions of tensions through the discovery of structures at the heart of a system rich in potential. Tensions and tendencies can be conceived as really existing in a system. The potential is one of the forms of the real as, a, as completely as the actual. The potentials of a system constitute its power of coming into being without degradation. They are not the simple virtuality of future states, but a reality that pushes them into being. Coming into being is not the actualization of a virtuality or the result of a conflict between the actual realities, but the operation of a system with potentials in its reality. Coming into being is a series of spurts of structurations of a system or of successive individuations of a system. So he's here further developing um, the, the concept of genesis um, and he's um, I guess contrasting it with two possible uh, notions of, of um, vital individuation or vital development, um, um, so, or you could say vital becoming, I guess would be a, a more literal translation. Um, so one would be adaptation in the evolutionary sense. Um, um, and this is um, a sort of a, a general problem in um, evolutionary biology about how, what adaptation means exactly. Um, but a, a sort of traditional concept of adaptation would be that the environment is fixed um, and then the, uh, the organism um, or, or the, the population of organisms over time uh, changes in such a way that the, the organism becomes adapted to that environment. So they, um, the fitness of the population increases over time. Um, and then he, so that's one concept of this vital becoming um, or the becoming of the living entity. Um, and then the other one that he, he points to is um, the, uh, the concept of élan vital from Bertsan, um, which is, uh, is explicitly presented as uh, in opposition to adaptation. So it's the, the idea of a, um, uh, a certain finality in uh, evolution, um, but it's, it's a finality that it's not, uh, it's not driven to the one sort of goal. It's, it's not the idea that evolution has a, uh, an end state, but it's and the idea that there's a sort of um, onward push of evolution, um, which uh, can be realized through different lineages. Uh, so you can have um, like uh, insects and human beings are, are both results of, of this um, sort of onward push of evolution, but um, in different lineages. Um, yeah, so it's a, it's a little bit, it's a little bit of a mysterious concept in the sense that it's defined sort of negatively as being not adaptation. Um, but the, the general idea is that um, life as such sort of pushes itself into evolution uh, in development into different forms um, and different uh, lineages. Uh, and then so, so Simondon, um, 
he, he presents these two notions as being uh, this sort of uh, complementary pair um, that contrast with each other. Um, so each one is, is sort of defined it by excluding the other one. Um, and then he presents uh, his own notion of becoming as being um, sort of overcoming this opposition, not, not, by, um, uh, not by conciliating them, but uh, by being beyond that opposition um, as a, um, a more abstract notion of development that is not specifically um, uh, reduced to the development of organic being. Yeah, I think um, interest, interestingly, um, interesting for me at least was that in reading the last few sessions, it almost gave me the impression that he was advocating for some kind of vitalism because of the the constitution of the milieu of technical object by the the life form uh, necessarily. Um, but here he seems to be distancing himself not only from the, the cybernetic um, definitions, but also the vitalist tradition as well, with a kind of critique of, of um, Bergson or a, um, a distancing from this kind of like uni univocal, um, I don't know exactly how it's almost a Mysterian aspect, as you said, I'm not, I'm not extremely studied in vitalism either, or uh, Bergson, Bergson necessarily, but there, there does seem to be um, a, a distancing of from Bergson, who is very, very influential and popular in, in Europe and France, specifically in the early, early 20th century. Right. Yeah. Um, it, it's kind of easy to forget um, just how big Bertrand was. Like he he had the he won the Nobel Prize in literature um, in, uh, in the twenties, I think, or or the thirties. I can't remember exactly when. Um, so he was, you know, well known enough. Not even not just in philosophical circles, but outside of you know in broader sort of literary culture um, that uh, that he was given a Nobel Prize. Um, uh, but then in the sort of, I guess, in the second half of the 20th century, roughly, he sort of fell out of favor to a large extent um, until he was sort of revived by, by Deleuze. Um, and uh, um, I think probably around the year 2000 or so, it started, started coming back into fashion. Um, but uh, um, yeah, so he's, so Simon Don here is definitely defining himself in, in opposition to uh, Bertin and to vitalism um, as a whole, but he wants to, he doesn't just say vitalism is wrong, he wants to account for um, the, the reality of, that vitalism is depicting. Um, so he wants to um, give a concept of genesis that is uh, broader than um, just the development of, um, of organic beings through the Elan Vital, uh, he wants to give a um, yeah a more abstract account of Genesis that can account for the um, development that the vitalists are pointing to. And the other um, another point in this uh, in this paragraph is a, a pretty dense paragraph. There's lots in here, um, but right towards the end, where he uh, he contrasts the idea of uh, potentials with virtuality. Um, so here he's drawing on uh, again on Bergson, um, and and Bergson had um, 
criticized the the notion of a, a pure possibility. Um, so something that would be basically just a, a copy of the actual or a, like a shadow version of the actual world um, that um, that would then sort of receive uh, existence in some sort of obscure way. Um, you know, and, and this is drawing on uh, the problem that, that Kant introduced as well, like the, the question of um, the difference between 100 possible dollars and 100 actual dollars, the, the concept uh, there's no difference in concept between, between possible dollars and actual dollars, um, uh, but that leaves the actual difference between possibility and actuality mysterious. Um, it, and Kant tries to use uh, the idea of sensation to fill that gap, um, but Bergson argues instead that we have to understand, um, uh, rather than uh, having these sort of um, shadow possibilities that somehow receive existence, we have to understand potentiality as uh, something that um, that is just as real as the actual. So the world is composed not just of actual um, uh, actual entities, but also of potentials that are just as real as those actual ent entities. And um, they bring about changes uh, through their own working. And it's not, uh, rather than being sort of uh, empty shadows that receive existence from outside in some mysterious way. What he's drawing on here in this last bit of the paragraph. Um, so he's aligning himself. Simon Don here is aligning himself with Bergson in in that respect, um, in rejecting the idea of possibilities as um, as sort of uh, shadow copies of the world. Right. Yeah. Then and there's a um, of course the a classic philosophical distinction from the day day interpretation. A. I don't. I'm bad at pronouncing things, but the Aristotle. Um, a text in which um, almost all the the talk of actual possibilities kind of arises from, and um, it seems like most conversations related to possibilia and actual possibilities tend to have their kind of more more historical bearing, at least classically in the kind of Aristotelian scholarship tradition. Right, that's uh, a text that I don't remember too much about, except for the the whole. Um... Uh, possible battle uh, or oh, the, the sea battle. The sea battle, yeah. Yeah, so it's a question of uh, if uh, if the proposition there will be a sea battle tomorrow is true, then um, then uh, it would, sorry, if it's true, that means it's true now. Um, and then the question is how is it still um, sort of open? How is the, the possibility of that battle open? Or because the battle could happen and it could also not happen unless you hold to a, a determinist position, which Aristotle doesn't want to hold. So he needs to um, find a way to account for contingency in the world, um, despite the logical specification of uh, um, future contingents uh, as either true or false. Yeah, that was a the very, very good explanation, actually. I mean, again, that's uh, my my sort of distant memory of uh, of having read that years ago. Um, so I'm sure there's a much more um, detail that you could go into uh, for someone who knew that better. But um, uh, yeah, so that's that's sort of the antecedent, I guess, of uh, of the the same problem that Kant is pointing to um, of the relation between the the possible and the actual. Um, uh, and um, it seems there it's it's hard to uh, give a good explanation. Um, of what that difference consists in, especially when you um, 
when you uh, like Kant does, if you make it, if you deny that there's any conceptual difference between the possible and the actual. So um, the concept of a hundred possible dollars and, and the concept of a hundred actual dollars is is the same. Um, it, then it makes it uh, very difficult to explain what that difference consists in. Yeah, and so the the sort of Bergsonian um, um, lineage or, or tradition um, wants to reject that as a, a false problem um, and look instead at the um, the actualization of potentials rather than um, uh, the realization of possibilities um, as as being the the type of problem that is solvable. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, so that's something we can uh, sort of keep in mind um, as we're reading the rest of, uh, of this uh, introduction um, that's uh, sort of in the background, the, this notion of potentials as part of the, the real world just as much as um, actual entities are. Uh, that's, that's sort of always in the background with Simon Don. It's interesting. It's odd to me because it's uh, the way that I'm reading it. Uh, I don't know Bergson well, but I, I've read Deleuze to some degree. And this idea of coming into being is not the actualization of a virtuality would seem to like sort of everything you've been saying for the past few minutes seems very compatible with way that, the way that Deleuze is talking. And yet this sentence coming into being is not the actualization of a virtuality feels like it runs against the grain of that because for Deleuze, those virtualities are the potentials contained with things that will will become actualized or whatever in the ways that you've been talking about. Right, I think it's, it, here it's just a question of terminology. Um, I think Deleuze uses the, the term virtual to describe, like you said, those those potentialities that, that become actualized. Um, whereas here, Simon Don was using the term virtuality to refer to um, the the sort of shadow concept of a possibility as as a a, a copy of the of the actual world. Um, so yeah, it's just the terminological difference. I think uh, the actual um, at the conceptual level, I think um, this is definitely something that that Deleuze draws from Death Sun and um, sort of sees confirmed in Simon Don. Okay. Okay. Uh, or we could be less charitable and say. Uh, Maybe he wants to show or signal uh, how more rational uh, than Bergson he is and how less prone to spirituality and spiritualism, as they call it. Yeah, that's a, an interesting um, suggestion. Um, I would have to go back to Bergson and, and see which terms he uses specifically in this context, um, um, because I don't like. I know he definitely um, sort of rejects the term possibility as as part of that false problem of you know the hundred possible dollars. But I'm not sure how he uses the term virtuality. Whether he uses it in the sense closer to the way Deleuze uses it um, to represent those um, those uh, real potentialities in uh, in the world, or whether he uses virtuality closer to the way that Simon Don uses it um, um, as uh, uh, virtualities being um, synonymous with possibilities. Um, yeah, so I, I would have to go back and check that, um, but it would be an interesting question to look into. And yeah, that's the the other aspect of, of your comment there that's, that's um, interesting is, is this notion of spiritualism, which, um, you know, Bergson is characterized as a, as a vitalist, but also as a spiritualist, um, because he, he wants to 
preserve some notion of a, a body-spirit dualism. Um, um, he, you know, it's, it's a, a quite a different notion than, say, in uh, in Descartes or, or the sort of classical mind-body dualism. But um, he still wants to preserve some notion of a of a spirit as something distinct from the body. Um, and uh, um, he he sort of defends that as an important uh, philosophical position. Um, so, so that's why he's characterized as a, a spiritualist. And um, I think Simondon would not want to be characterized as a spiritualist um, in the same way. Yeah, isn't that the vitalism is dependent on a kind of spiritualism, right? That um, the vital spirit sort of. Right. Yeah. So the elan vital, um, this, this um, sort of force that pushes evolution forward, um, is related to um, the the spiritual um, principle or the, or um, spirit as something distinct from matter. Um, uh, so yeah, there's definitely a, a relationship between the vitalism and the spiritualism, and uh, I think it's a, a sort of open problem or, or an interesting problem to to see if if that's uh, sort of a necessary connection, like is it, um, does vitalism sort of necessarily entail spiritualism? Um, because this is something that, uh, I mean, it's a little bit off topic, but uh, I think it's interesting to pursue that uh, Deleuze is sometimes characterized as um, as being a spiritualist philosopher in certain ways, um, precisely because of his vitalism. Um, it's a, a sort of a more abstract spiritualism compared to Dachshund, but um, I, I think there is a certain truth to that characterization. Um, and uh, so it'd be interesting with Simondon to, uh, to investigate um, to what extent his sort of um, quasi-vitalism or his appreciation for vitalism, um, uh, to what extent it uh, forces him into a, some sort of spiritualism or, or, or whether he's capable of uh, sort of grasping the, the positive aspect of vitalism without becoming a spiritualist. Um, so that's something, I, again, I, I'm not sure. Um, I don't have an answer to that question, but I think it's something that would be worth uh, keeping in mind as well while, while we're reading this. Okay, should I read the next section? Yes, uh, go ahead. The relation of man to the world is not a simple adaption governed by a law of self-regulating finality that would find ever-increasingly stable states of equilibrium. On the contrary, the evolution of this relation, in which technicity participates among other modes of being, manifests an ability to evolve that grows at each stage, discovering new forms and forces capable of making it evolve even more, rather than stabilizing it and making it tend towards more and more limited fluctuations. The very notion of finality applied to this coming into being appears inadequate, since one can indeed find limited finalities within this coming into being, search for food, defense against destructive forces, but there is no unique and superior end that one could superimpose on all aspects of evolution in order to coordinate them and account for their orientation through the search for an end that would be superior to all particular ends. This is, this is why it is not forbidden to call upon a hypothesis that intervenes with a more primitive genetic schema than that of the opposed aspects of adaptation in Elan Vital, and enclosing both of them as abstract limit cases, namely that of the successive stages of an individuating structuration, 
going from metastable state to metastable state by means of successive inventions of structures. Right, so this is um, another uh, example of this typical form of argument that, that we've seen on a number of occasions before, um, where he sets up this opposition of two positions uh, regarding a subject matter um, here, um, uh, development or, gen or genesis. Um, so he sets up these two positions, um, and then he wants to articulate a, a third position that is more fundamental than the two, um, and from which those two can be derived as uh, as limit cases. Um, and so he he's not um, it's not a sort of compromised position. It's not like a little of both or something like that. It's something that underlies the two opposed positions and then generates those two opposed positions as limit cases. I mean, it's also interesting to uh, to look at that notion of uh, finality um, that he's opposing here, um, which I think we can um, uh, connect with his criticism of cybernetics um, as being too uh, too closely limited um, to the the machine um, the machine animal analogy or the machine living being analogy. So, because uh, cybernetics is, uh, sort of um, treats this analogy as a, as a real um, relationship or a, a real identity of, of structure between the machine and the organism. Um, it treats uh, uh, the stability of states or the homeostasis as being what is essential to a living being. Um, but of course, living beings don't simply, um, there's no sort of uh, total end that living beings tend towards. There's a variety of different ends um, and homeostasis is only uh, a part of the structure of a living being. Um, and there's also lots of other um, processes that have their own ends, um, uh, whether it's reproduction or, or searching for food or, or defense or whatever other um, um, ends you can point to for living beings. Um, uh, and, and there's no sort of total end that a living being is directed towards. Okay, we can go on to the next paragraph then, which uh, I can read. The technicity that manifests itself in the use of objects can perhaps be conceived as appearing in a structuration that provisionally resolves the problems posed by the primitive and original phase of man's relationship to the world. One can call this first phase the magical phase, taking this word in its most general sense and considering the magical mode of existence as the pre-technical and pre-religious mode, and so as immediately above the relationship that is simply between the living thing and its milieu. The magical mode of the relation with the world is not devoid of all organization. On the contrary, it is rich in implicit organization, attached to the world and to man. In the magical mode, the relation between man and the world is not yet concretized and constituted as standing apart by means of specialized objects or human beings. But this mediation does exist functionally in the most elementary of all structurations, which is also the first, that from which erupts the distinction between figure and ground in the universe. Technicity appears as a structure that results in incompatibility. It specializes the figural functions, while religions on their side specialize the functions of ground. The original magical universe, which is, which is rich in potentials, structures itself by splitting in two. Technicity appears as one of the two aspects of a solution given to the problem of man's relation with the world, the other simultaneous and correlated aspect being the institution of definite religions. However, coming into being does not stop at the discovery of technicity. From being a solution, technicity once more becomes a problem when it reconstitutes a system via an evolution that leads from technical objects to technical ensembles. The technical universe is saturated, then oversaturated in turn. 
at the same time as the religious universe, just as it had, had happened with the magical universe. The inheritance of technicity to technical objects is provisional. It constitutes only a moment of gen genetic coming into being. So again, there's, uh, there's quite a bit in this paragraph. Um, so he's, he's given, uh, so in, in uh, what we've read up to this paragraph, he's given um, a sort of a short summary of, of his concept of, uh, of, ge of genesis and genetic development. Um, and then now he's going to give the application of that concept to the genesis of technical reality. And 61 has found uh, um, a, a good graph of, um, of this sort of process of, of uh, genesis. Um, and so we start with magic as the primitive relation or, or original relation of uh, the human being to the world. Um, and then uh, each stage of the genesis um, occurs by a splitting between uh, figure and ground aspects. Um, so uh, um, again, this is drawing on uh, Gestalt psychology. Um, so the, the figure is the, uh, the, the shape um, or the structure of, of perception, the individuated object, and then the ground is the, the background on which that figure appears. Um, and so magic separates into figure and ground, uh, which are represented as technics and religion. Uh, so technics is the, the figure aspect and religion is the ground aspect. Um, and then uh, as we proceed through this development, each of those will in turn split into figure and ground as well. I'll go ahead and post this image as the um, thumbnail for the video when I post it up on YouTube this time as well. Yeah, that seems like a, a good uh, a good image to use for this whole third part. I'm having a little bit of trouble understanding what this last sentence means. The inheritance of technicity to technical objects is provisional. It constitutes only a moment of genetic coming into being. How would you uh, how would you sort of read that meaning wise? I think um, I think what it means here, uh, yeah, I agree that it is a little bit obscure. I think it's um, uh, pointing to the fact that um, technical or, or technical reality or technicity um, is only one stage of the process. It's uh, it's a, a provisional solution to a problem, um, and then it, it itself becomes a problem later on, which requires solution. Um, so that's the sense in which it's provisional. It's one moment of the genetic process of coming into being. Uh, I had a similar difficulty, but uh, there are some further passages uh, in the further pages, like uh, 176. Uh, he makes a similar statement there uh, about the inexhaustibility of technicity to technical objects. So he says, for instance, we, we are going to get there, but this is just by way of anticipation, insufficient to start from uh, constituted technical objects. Uh, objects appear at a certain moment, but technicity precedes them and goes beyond them. Again, he's repeating himself, I guess. Uh, technical objects result from an objectification of technicity. They are produced by it. Uh, uh, yeah, so technicity is not exhausted in the object. To so a passage to the same effect, I guess. Uh, but yeah, still very uh, puzzling. How are we to consider this technicity that is not in the object? Um, 
Is it an essence? Is it like a natura naturans uh, to the natura naturata of uh, technical objects as already constituted? I guess here the key is constituted versus constitution or constitutiveness. Yeah, and maybe I guess conceptually it's kind of an artifact of the whole need to commit himself to a kind of uh, structuring operations and operational structures sort of way of approaching things. Yeah, I think I think you're right to to compare this to the um, natura naturata natura naturans distinction. Um, so technical reality um, would be this um, naturans um, type of of existence or constituting existence, and then. Uh, the technical object would be the constituted or the naturata uh, form of existence. Um, uh, so, you, yeah, there's always this um, sort of underlying structuring process that produces a structure, um, uh, and but is not reducible to that structure. It's, it's contains more reality than the, the structure that results from the process. Um, am I correct in in uh, remembering that that is Spinozan? nomenclature yeah that's uh, spinoza's term um natura naturata natura naturans so um they're both aspects of of god deo siwe natura god or nature um um which are you know synonymous terms for spinoza um but there's there's nature insofar as it is um uh as it is uh producing um yeah, producing entities, I guess you could say, and then there's nature insofar as it is produced entities. I should probably commit that distinction to memory. Yeah, Spinoza is cool. We can uh, we can do a Spinoza reading group maybe at some point after we're done uh, reading whatever um, uh, Simon Dome is uh, available to us. Sure, I would I would be on board with that as well. So, uh, I would like to join that too. Cool. We'll uh, put that in our our um, reserve for um, after we're done with the with the texts that are available to us from Simon Don. Um, I was just going to say that um, we can also remember the that this what we're reading so far is just the introduction to this um, to this whole part of the book. So a lot of the things that are presented in a sort of elliptical fashion here or in a, a very compressed way will be developed in more detail um, in the chapters themselves. Uh, so if there's things that are a little bit obscure uh, as we're reading it now, then it, it's not necessarily it, it's likely that it, it will be explained further uh, uh, in the rest of the, the part. And so I think we can go on to uh, the next two short paragraphs, uh, uh, or maybe three, because they look like they're all tied together, the next three paragraphs. I can go. Um, now, according to this hypothesis, technicity must never be considered an isolated reality, but as part of a system. It is a partial reality and a transitory reality, both the result and principle of genesis. Being the result of an evolution, technicity is also the depository of a capacity to evolve precisely because as solution to a first problem, it has the capacity to be a mediation between man and the world. This hypothesis would entail two consequences. First, the technicity of objects or of thought cannot be considered as a complete reality or as a mode of thinking having its own independent truth. 
any form of thought or any mode of existence engendered by technicity would need to be complemented and balanced out by another mode of thought or existence coming from the religious world. Secondly, as the emergence of technicity marks a break within and a splitting into of the primitive magical reality, primitive magical unity, pardon me, technicity, like religiosity, is heir to a capacity for evolutionary divergence. In the coming into being of man's mode of being in the world, this force of divergence must be compensated by a force of convergence, by a relational function maintaining unity despite this divergence. The, of the, the splitting of the magical structure wouldn't be viable unless a function of convergence stood in opposition to the powers of divergence. All right, so again, there's uh, stuff to unpock here um, because it's uh, a little bit dense, um, but uh, so he's presenting. So the hypothesis is that um, um, the technical reality is the result of a genesis from the splitting of uh, magical reality and then is itself subject to splitting further on. Um, so that's the, that's the hypothesis. And then uh, he draws two consequences from that hypothesis. So first is that um, technical thinking uh, doesn't have truth uh, in itself um, or um, as a separate um, mode of thinking. Um, it's only in coordination with uh, religious thinking or religious existence that technical thinking has its uh, its sort of concrete truth. Um, uh, so they, they, they're sort of coordinate um, modes of existence, the technical and the religious. Um, and then the second consequence that he draws from that hypothesis is that um, um, there's this sort of uh, contrary um, tendency. So in, in the same way uh, that, or in, in conjunction with the splitting tendency that leads magic to split into technics and religion, um, and then lead each of, each of those to split uh, further on. Um, there's also a tendency towards coordination of what has been split. So if we look at that diagram, you can see that there are, um, you know, a, a series of concepts down the middle of the of the split. Um, and as we go through the chapter, we'll see, you know, how those concepts fit in. But each of them is a, a sort of coordination of those split realities. Um, so insofar as human being in the world is a unity, um, then, then the split between different modes of existence um, has to also have a, a sort of convergence of those modes of existence. They have to be un unified in some way, and that's what those other concepts are um, are going to do. So that's um, uh, that's the second uh, consequence of the hypothesis. Okay, so we can go on to the next um, couple short paragraphs here, which uh, which I'll read. These two reasons make it necessary to study where technicity comes from, what it results in, and what relations it maintains with man's other modes of being, which is to say how it opens itself to functions of convergence. Now, the general sense of coming into being would be the following. The different forms of thinking and of being in the world diverge as soon as they appear, i.e. when they are not saturated. Then they reconverge when they are saturated and tend to structure themselves through new splits. The functions of convergence can take place by virtue of the oversaturation of the evolutionary forms of being in the world at the spontaneous level of aesthetic thought and at the reflected level of philosophical thought. Technicity becomes oversaturated by once again incorporating the reality of the world to which it is applied. 
Religiosity, on the other hand, becomes oversaturated by incorporating the reality of human groups whose primitive relation with the world it mediates. Thus oversaturated, technicity splits into theory and praxis in the same way that religi religiosity splits into ethics and dogma. Hmm. That's very clarifying, actually, the characterization of the split between theory and praxis. Yeah, this is, uh, again, it's going to be developed in more detail as we go along, um, but the, the technical reality is the result of that split. Um, and then, uh, um, as we'll see later, scientific thought is a, a process of convergence between um, theological dogma or, or, or um, religious dogma and um, the theory that comes from technical reality. Um, yeah, so, yeah, we'll see that in more detail later on. I'm starting to somewhat understand the diagram I posted now. Yeah, the diagram, of course, is a, uh, a very schematic version of, of what the whole part of the book is going to present. So um, it's, uh, yeah, it takes um, reading through it to actually be able to understand properly how the diagram works. And maybe another points we can uh, um, uh, point out in in this uh, these last couple of paragraphs is this notion of saturation, um, which though um, so we saw um, that Genesis occurs through um, the supersaturated uh, reality um, becoming split into the the individual and then the uh, surrounding milieu. Um, so in in this sort of uh, continuous process, or um, not continuous, but um, um, extended process of genesis that he's pointing to here. Um, you have each stage uh, splits um, once it becomes saturated. So magic becomes saturated and then splits into technical reality and religion. And then eventually technical reality and religion themselves become saturated and they split in turn. Um, so uh, yeah, that, that concept of saturation is something that's going to be important throughout the rest of the, the part of this book. All right, should I um, read this next sizable paragraph here? Sure, go ahead. Thus, there would not only be a genesis of technicity, but also a genesis on the basis of technicity through the splitting of an original technicity into figure and ground, fond, the ground corresponding to the functions of totality that are independent of each application of technical gestures. Whereas the figure, made of definite and particular schemas, specifies each technique as a matter of acting. The deepest reality, reality de fond, of techniques constitutes theoretical knowledge, whereas the particular schemas give us praxis. It is the figural realities of religions which, on the contrary, consti constitute themselves as a coherent dogma, while the grounding reality, reality de fond, becomes ethical and detached from dogma. There is an analogy to be found between the praxis that issues forth from techniques and the ethics issuing forth from religions, as well as an analogy between the theoretical knowledge of the sciences, which issues forth from techniques, and religious dogma. This analogy comes both from the identity of the representative aspect of both scientific knowledge and religious dogma, or the active aspect of the praxis of both techniques and ethics, and also from the incompatibility that arises from the fact that these different modes of thinking issue forth either from figural realities or from grounding realities. The purpose, sense, of philosophical thought 
intervening between the two representative orders and the two active orders of thought is to make them converge and establish a mediation between them. Now, in order for this mediation to be possible, the very genesis of these forms of thought must be known and accomplished in a complete manner on the basis of previous stages of technicity and religiosity. Therefore, philosophical thought must start from the genesis of technicity integrated into the ensemble of genetic processes that precede it, follow, and surround it, not only in order to be able to know technicity in itself, but in order to grasp the problems that dominate the philosophical problematic at their very basis, the theory of knowledge and the theory of action in the relation with the theory of being. Right, so again, he's um, uh, sort of quickly running through the, the stages of this process of genesis that are outlined in the diagram. Um, so we'll see that in, in further detail later on. Uh, we don't need to worry too much about all the details of, uh, of the process at this point. Um, there is one, one point, um, just a, a point of um, translation here that I think is, uh, uh, I mean, I, I'm not, I don't like the way they did it. Um, I'm not sure if there's a better way to, doing, to do it, um, but they, they, so the, the term ground, uh, like figure in ground, the, the, the term ground there is translating font. Um, which means like the background of a picture, um, but it also um, uh, means like the bottom of something, like uh, le pont de l'océan, like the, the bottom of the ocean. Um, um, and so that, or the depths of the ocean, something like that. Um, and so they, I think they're trying to sort of use both or, or draw on both meanings here. So they, they, they take the term uh, réalité de fond, they translate that as the deepest reality in, in one sentence. And then uh, in the next sentence, they translate it as grounding reality. Um, so I, I think it would be better just to stick with one uh, translation of that term, uh, like re uh, you know, reality of ground or something like that, um, um, just with keeping in mind that the, the French term also has this connotation of, of the depths or the bottom of something. Yeah, no, that that's really interesting. I wonder what why they chose to translate one word in two different ways. I'm always curious about this when I run into it in English translations. It it um it almost seems uh, devious in some ways, or perhaps they they had two options available and decided they would just go with both. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be too critical. I mean, like I've said before, I think this is a very good translation as a whole, um, but there's always, you know, little points where you can disagree with their choices. Um, but uh, I think what they were trying to do is, is get across both of those aspects of the term foam, um, the the idea of a, a background of a picture, then also the depths of the ocean or, or something like that. Um, um, because I think both of those aspects are at work in um, Simondon's use of the term, but um, I think it would have been better for them to stick with one term because like Simondon was using it as a technical term here. Um, and, and so I think it's best to just stick with one term uh, to translate the, the term that he's using. Um, and then you can make it like maybe a footnote to explain some of the nuances of, of the, the term. Yeah, that would definitely aid in interpretation if they were to translate in a slightly more linear fashion. But um, I do find it interesting, though, that there is that that um, 
similarity between the 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 background in in terms of um like the a painting and like the bottom the bottom and the background are are semantically situated very close to one another in in the language of the author i find that very fascinating yeah, and I think the the sort of conceptual connection you can make is is um, the idea is that you're looking downwards towards the bottom of the ocean, then something near the surface, fish or whatever near the surface will appear as the the sort of figure, uh, the the foreground, and then the bottom of the ocean would be the the background, um, and then so when when Simon Don is using this term ground or or fond, um, there's always so even if it has that sense of the the pictorial background, um, there's always still the sense of uh, something like a depth from which something can come up. It, it's uh, it's not just like a static sort of blank canvas or something like that. It's uh, it's something that contains contains potentials that can um, be realized in future in in the figural. I mean that to me that kind of hangs together with the way that Heidegger's work is sometimes just kind of just going back to the idea of being in the world. The the uh, the the way that you know the way that he talks about the clearing or the opening, uh, like sort of the event that causes the opening and 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 which people tend to sort of run together as as some as the groundless ground, right? So that there's a sense in which, um, I mean, that it's embodied in the sense of being a figure ground gestalt, but that you can also bring that language down into the ontological level. I think that that's kind of maybe an important sort of note being sounded here too. I don't know, like. Deleuze wrote a book called What is Grounding, where he goes sort of goes back and looks at all the looks at various philosophical figures and sort of their understanding of the kind of the axiomatics that they staged at the start of their arguments in order to establish a ground. Yeah, and, and grounding is is even popular in analytic circles these days. Yeah, there's a whole literature in, in analytic metaphysics and, and ontology on on, on grounding um, and uh, um, you know what relations it has to um, uh, logical inference and and causation and and other types of relationships. Um, uh, yeah, so that's another um, aspect. So fond is related etymologically to the term fondement, um, um, foundation, um, which which is has you know the the sort of literal meaning of the the foundations of a house, but uh, also found foundations in an epistemological sense. So the foundations of a of a philosophical system or of a intellectual position or or whatever um you know conceptual cognitive term you want to use um so yeah fondé like to found something um to, to set it up on a, a firm basis um, um yeah so basis would be another term you could use to translate fond as well um yeah so it's a it's a term that has um sort of a, a variety of related meanings um which makes it hard to translate well, I suppose we should get into chapter one if if y'all are um, uh, ready and equipped. Yeah, I think uh, yeah we have uh, you know half an hour, forty minutes or so um, on the recording, so we can start into chapter one. Um, so I can start reading. Uh, so it's chapter one, the genesis of technicity, section one, the notion of the phase applied to coming into being, technicity as a phase. This study postulates that technicity is one of the two fundamental phases of the mode of existence of the whole constituted by man and the world. By phase, we mean not a temporal moment replaced by another, but an aspect that results from a splitting in two of being and in opposition to another aspect. This sense of the word phase is inspired by the notion of the phase ratio in physics. 
one cannot conceive of a phase except in relation to another or to several other phases. In a system of phases, there is a relation of equilibrium and of reciprocal tensions. It is the actual system of all phases taken together that is the complete reality, not each phase in itself. A phase is only a phase in relation to others, from which it distinguishes itself in a manner that is totally independent of the notions of genus and species. The existence of a plurality of phases finally defines the reality of a neutral center of equilibrium in relation to which there is a phase shift. This schema is very different from the dialectical schema because it implies neither necessary succession nor the intervention of the negativity as a motor of progress. Furthermore, opposition within the schema of phases only exists in the particular case of a two-phase structure. The adoption of, oh, sorry, uh, yeah, I'll continue here. The adoption of such a schema founded upon the notion of the phase aims to put into play a principle according to which the temporal development of a living reality proceeds through a split on the basis of an initial active center, then through a regrouping after the furtherance of each separated reality resulting from this split. Each separated reality is the symbol of the other, just as each phase is the symbol of the other phase or phases. No phase, other phase, is balanced with respect to itself, nor does it contain a, a complete truth or reality. Every phase is abstract and partial, untenable. Only the system of phases is an equilibrium in its neutral point. Its truth and reality are this neutral point, the procession and, and conversion in relation to this neutral point. I, I find this, uh, these two paragraphs interesting here to start off the chapter with um, a, to, in the way they contrast um, Simondon's method with the dialectical method, which my, my bearing is, is, is related to Hegel's dialectical approach what Simondon is is terming phase seems to replace what what Hegel would term the the dialectical moment, um, which are linear and ordered in a sense that they're successive. And this it seems to be the departure between the two. Um, that being that the the criteria of succession that's related to the progression of the dialectical moments into um, their convergent totality in, in Hegel's approach is not, con is not considered to be um, um, central. And, and the notion of a phase rather than moment almost points to a kind of ergodicity or a repeatability of, of this type of, um, I don't know whether to call it a system or a system of explication, I suppose, um, such that um, there seems to be a, a um, well, in, in the sense of frequencies, if you if you take a, um, a wavelength and look at the, the different or two, two wavelengths that are um, slightly, very, very slightly different in frequency from one another, there can be a kind of um, a, a gradual phase, phase shifting that goes on in which a um, there is a repetition that is implicit in the kind of parameters of the frequency. Whereas with Hegel's dialectical moments, there's, there's never considered to be a kind of returning to an original state or a point in which the phases would um, substantially overlap in a, what I would call an er ergodic manner. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. Uh, an interesting um, comparison uh, or or um, illustration of what he's talking about. Um, so, in in the dialectical 
schema or, or dialectical mode of thinking. There's always um, progression from one stage to the next one, and uh, each stage preserves something from the previous one. Um, it, uh, it, uh, Hegel always describes the something as the truth of the previous stage. Um, so it, it it overcomes the the limitation of one stage, and then it it uh, preserves the the positive aspect of that stage. Um, and so Simondon wants to distinguish his um, mode of thinking or his presentation of this genetic process from the dialectical process, precisely in that it um, it doesn't have this same uh, notion of uh, a necessary succession or or this. Uh, um, linear uh, progress um, through this sequence of stages. So each stage um, is sort of, um, it, it, the development that it undergoes is not the result of some sort of um, uh, linear process that preserves reality like a dialectical process. And then the other opposition that he, he um, presents um, with the dialectical process is that uh, there's no negation in his schema uh, of, of Genesis. Um, so the dialectical process always involves um, uh, a positive reality and then um, uh, a negation and then the uh, um, overcoming of the negation um, at a higher level um, that retains the, the positive aspect. Um, but uh, in, in uh, Simondon's schema, there's no negation as the motor of progress. There, there's um, and there's no opposition except insofar as there are two stages, uh, only only one, or sorry, two phases. Once only in, in a process that um, is limited to two phases is there an opposition, um, and but there's no uh, necessity that there's only going to be two phases. It could be three, ten, whatever phases. Yeah, I, I read that the, in relation to negation, um, I read this as, as um, po posteriorizing the negation uh, criteria such that the, the, any negation would be the result of these phase shifts rather than implicit um, in any kind of a priori sense in the way that the, the dialectic method um, such that Hegel would be famous for would would posit as having this. I don't want to say essential because that's it's probably not the right word to use, but um, net, uh, probably necessary. Uh, necessary is a better word to use here. Because essential, of course, is is um, very hard to unpack for for Hegel specifically. But um, the way that negation is. Um, uh, opposed in 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 Hegel's uh, science of logic to reality, so reality and negation are considered to be in a kind of innate dialectical um, uh, opposition in the doctrine of being. Yeah, and uh, like throughout, like there's the specific category of negation within the science of logic, but there's also throughout the whole logical process, there is um, determinate negation is, is sort of the motor of the, of, uh, of the whole process that, um, uh, that makes one stage move on to the next one. Um, um, whereas for Simon Don, um, there's no role for negation uh, at that level. Um, and I think you're right that he would say that negation is a, a secondary reality um, or something that's produced as a result of this process of genesis. Um, 
so in the same way that um, the classical logical principles are our results, um, I, I think you would put negation in that same category. Uh, I just want to uh, say I find very interesting that uh, perhaps uh, from the start of today's talk, uh, this uh, link between logic and metaphysics has been coming up a lot, I noticed. Yeah, that's true. Um, and it's interesting because it's not something that um, Simon Dong himself uh, puts a lot of emphasis on. Um, it could just be, you know, where we're coming from, uh, you know, with uh, with our own, uh, you know, background and what we're bringing to the text. Um, but it's interesting that uh, that that has come up so much today. Um, it, I guess it just shows that there's um, aspects of Simon Dong's work that you can draw out by starting from a different uh, uh, a different basis. It feels more like it's just to just to link onto that idea of the relationship between logic and metaphysics. This feels like a moment where we're actually talking about a paradoxical event. Like it's prior to logic in the sense that it's paradox. Like I see, like I see where um, where Deleuze talks about um, paradox in the logic of sense sounds. This sounds like a, a technical description of kind of what he's he could have, he sort of stylizes it in terms of um, Alice in Wonderland. Like she's Alice in Wonderland is when she drinks the potion or whatever she's. She's uh, getting bigger and smaller simultaneously. She's getting bigger than she was. Uh, I forget how it goes. It's like um, large, she's larger, larger than she was, and and uh, smaller than she's becoming, or something like that. And it's a kind of way of expressing how uh, events in the world um, receive sort of the criteria of directionality, and that's when they become. That's when they get this sort of um, second order uh, specification of succession, or something that you're describing. Yeah, there there is a, a certain paradoxical element. Um, um, I, I'm not sure if I would sort of line this up um, precisely with Deleuze on the event, um, which again is something that I, I would have to go back to Deleuze and 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 look at that again um, to uh, to get the details right. But um, um, because I think in Deleuze it's the event itself that that has this paradoxical structure, like you, you pointed to the the Alice growing. Uh, growing larger than she was and smaller and she's becoming smaller than she will be. Um, uh, so she's becoming in both directions at the same time. So it's the event that has this paradoxical structure, whereas for Simon Don, it's the pre-individuated reality that has the paradoxical structure that's prior to logic. And then it's, um, it's uh, through that uh, genetic process, it sort of becomes well-behaved in, in logical terms. Um, so I'm not sure if it lines up the if the two sort of um, uh, paradoxical moments line up uh, uh, precisely. Um, but again, I'd have to go back to the Deleuze to get that to make sure I get that right. Uh, the fact that you're drawing the distinction is helpful for me. So <laughs> thanks. Okay, so I think we can go on to the uh, um, the next. Oh, actually, maybe one one thing to uh, to mention before we go on to the next one is this notion of phases. Um, as um, uh, he's distinguishing it from the genus and species type of um, categorization. Um, and he, uh, I think right at the beginning of the book, he, he explicitly set out um, his opposition to the genus and species um, as, as a, a way of, of categorizing technical reality. And so now we, we see um, a more sort of principled reason why he's opposed to that form 
of um, of, uh, of categorization because in the in the introduction he he gave sort of an empirical reason just saying that uh, classification by genus and species um, will give you sort of bad categories like um, uh, if I remember correctly he points out that a uh, a mechanical clock and a, a crossbow have the same sort of fundamental principles but if you if you classify objects by by genus and species then they'll end up in completely different categories and then you miss the underlying um, mechanical properties that are that are um, shared by the two objects so that's just sort of an empirical objection um, but then now we get to a more um, fundamental objection to the the method of categorization by genus and species which is that the the sort of ontologically fundamental um, uh, process of differentiation is, is through this um, differentiation of phases rather than um, uh, a genus that is subdivided into into subspecies and so on. Okay, now I think we can go on to the next category unless I think of something else. Um, if someone else would like to read. I can go again. So where are we? Uh, we suppose that technicity, is that right? Is that right? Yes, that's where we are. We suppose that technicity results from a phase shift of a unique, central, and original mode of being in the world, the magical mode. The phase that balances our technicity is the religious mode of being. Aesthetic thought appears at the neutral point between technics and religion at the moment of the splitting of the primitive magical unity. It is not a phase, but rather a permanent reminder of the rupture of unity of the magical mode of being, as well as a reminder of the search for its future unity. Each phase in turn splits into a theoretical mode and a practical mode. There is thus a practical mode of technics and a practical mode of religion, as well as a theoretical mode of technics and a theoretical mode of religion. Right, and one aspect of the, his concept of, of the phase that we, that we didn't um, uh, sort of put emphasis on uh, earlier is, is the, the notion of the central point. Um, and so this is related to the that structure of argument that I that I pointed to earlier that we've seen in a number of previous passages where he always takes some sort of opposition and then finds a uh, underlying fundamental level um, from which those two opposed points of view on the subject are are uh, derived. Um, and so this is the sort of uh, ontological basis for that mode of argument is that. Um, the phase is understood through this central point um, th uh, in relation to which the phases are dephased. So um, the phase difference is uh, always in relation to the central point. Um, and the central point is that from which the, the two phases or, or many phases are, are derived. I'm trying to wrap my head around the, the, the nature of aesthetic thought for Simondon. Um... I'm hoping that he goes into more detail with that later. Uh, I believe he does. I'm not 100% sure though, uh, but yeah, we will see that as we go along. What what uh, I think he he does give a little bit more um, explanation of, of how that fits in with um, technical and uh, technical reality and religious reality. And so I think we can go on to the next paragraph. Okay. In the same way as the distance between technics and religion gives rise to aesthetic thought, the distance between the two theoretical modes, the technical one and the religious one, gives rise to scientific knowledge as a mediation between technics and religion. 
The distance between the practical technical mode and the practical religious mode gives rise to ethical thinking. Aesthetic thought is thus a more primitive mediation between technics and religion than science and ethics. Since the birth of science and of ethics requires a prior splitting between the theoretical and the practical mode at the heart of technics and of religion. Out of this arises the fact that aesthetic thought is indeed really situated at the neutral point, prolonging the existence of magic, whereas science on the one hand and ethics on the other oppose each other with respect to the neutral point, since there is the same distance between them as there is between the theoretical and practical mode in technics and religion. If science and ethics could converge and reunite, they would coincide within the axis of neutrality of this genetic system, thereby providing a second analog to the magical unity, above and beyond aesthetic thought, which is its first analog, and which is incomplete since it allows for the phase shift of technics and religion to subsist. This second analog would be complete. It would at once replace magic and aesthetics, but it is perhaps nothing more than a mere tendency playing a normative role, since nothing proves that the distance between the theoretical mode and the practical mode can be completely overcome. This direction defines philosophical research. So yeah, he, he seems to be um, giving a, a, a rather specific meta, meta-philosophical account in relation to magic and aesthetic thought and uh, philosophical thought being uh, part three of three in these in these three. Am I correct in that sort sorting <laughs> or of these categories? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, there's the so magic is the the primitive uh, or undifferentiated unity um, of being in the world, uh, which then splits into technics and religion. Um, uh, and then each each of those techniques and religion um, are split into uh, theoretical and practical aspects, um, and then uh, uh, and they're also united through at the level of aesthetic thought. Um, and then uh, so the diagram doesn't present this quite um, as intuitively, but um, scientific thought and ethical thought are they should be um, it should be rotated. 90 degrees, I guess, it would be hard to fit that into the diagram, but um, they should be, each of them should be on one side of the central um, line, I guess you could say, of the uh, unification. So scientific thought unites the practical aspect, or sorry, scientific thought unites the theoretical aspect of a religion with the theoretical aspect of technics, and then uh, ethical thought um, unites the the practical aspect of ethics of, uh, of religion with the practical aspect of technics um, but each of those on, only has sort of uh, half of the reality it, um, scientific thought has the technical half of, of or, or the theoretical half of reality and um, uh, ethical thought has the practical half of reality um, and so they, they should be on either side of that central dividing line. Um, and then philosophical thought is uh, uh, another um, mediation at a, a yet higher level. Yeah, I can I can envision that the diagram, if it were to be three, made into a 3D diagram, would be would be more easy to kind of see this um, this relation because 
it doesn't seem that the theory or the practice would be either higher or lower in relation to the magic and the philosophical thought. So if you could kind of like the, get the, the scientific thought and ethical thought dimensions of the diagram and kind of imagine them along the z-axis, in other words, I think that is that is that more what you would have in mind? Yeah, I think that would be how you'd have to represent it in, in three dimensions. Um, so you take the whole the whole plane, the whole sort of in the diagram as a, a square-ish shape, like the theology, inductive theory, um, applied ethics to normative ethics. You take that whole plane and rotate it 90 degrees so it's coming out from on that z-axis. But yeah, that's getting into some like uh, elaborate data visualization. Uh, type of process. Um, but uh, yeah, the diagram is still useful to, uh, to sort of show the, the stages, but it, it doesn't show that relationship um, between uh, scientific thought and ethical thought in relation to the aesthetic thought. Um, it doesn't show that um, quite the way that he describes it in the text. Okay, so we can go on to the next paragraph and I can read. In order to indicate the true nature of technical objects, it is thus necessary to resort to a study of the entire genesis of the relations of man in the world. The technicity of objects will then appear as one of two phases of man's relation with the world, engendered by the splitting of the primitive magical unity. Must one then consider technicity as a simple moment of genesis? Yes, in a certain sense. There is indeed something transitory in technicity, which itself splits into theory and praxis and participates in the subsequent genesis of practical and theoretical thought. But in another sense, there is something definitive in the opposition of technicity to religiosity. But one can think that man's primitive way of being in the world, magic, can inexhaustibly furnish an indefinite number of successive contributions capable of splitting into a technical phase and a religious phase. In this way, even though there is effectively a succession in Genesis, the successive stages of different Genesis are simultaneous within culture. And there exist relations and interactions not only between simultaneous phases, but also between successive stages. Not only can techniques encounter religion and aesthetic thought, but also science and ethics. Now, if one adopts the genetic postulate, then one, uh, sorry, one notices that a science or an ethics can never encounter a religion or a technics on a truly common ground, since the modes of thought are at different levels. For example, a science and a technics, and exist at the same time. And they neither constitute a single genetic lineage nor arise from the same sudden outpouring of the primitive magical universe. True and balanced relations only exist between phases of the same level, for example, between a technical ensemble and a religion, or between successive degrees of genesis that are part of the same lineage, for example, between the stage of techniques and religions in the 17th century and the contemporary stages of science and ethics. True relations only exist in a genetic ensemble balanced around a neutral point, envisioned in its totality. So this is a further development of the, the thesis that he, he stated in the introduction to this part um, that we just read, um, namely that uh, technical reality is um, a stage or it has this um, um, uh, provisional existence. Um, so it's, it's one, one stage of the process of, of genesis um, and then it itself undergoes that genetic process um, and uh, undergoes further differentiation. Um, so he, he accepts that thesis, but um, he also qualifies it um, because he says, in another sense, there is something definitive in the opposition of technicity to re religiosity. Um, so that second sense, I think, is a little bit more difficult to draw out from the text. Um, 
but uh, as, as I understand it, it, it's the second sense um, in which technicity and religiosity have this definitive um, existence rather than provisional existence. Um, I think it's the sense in which uh, they can only be compared at the level of differentiation that they are at. So um, technical thinking can only properly be contrasted or, or compared with, with religious thinking um, uh, or, or properly balanced by religious thinking. Um, whereas uh, scientific thought can be compared with ethical thought. Um, that's the sort of proper uh, opposition or, or balance um, through the modes through the, at the different stages of the genetic process. Whereas if you tried to compare, uh, say, techniques and uh, 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 scientific thought, for example, they would, those would be at different levels of the of the process of, of uh, genetic differentiation. And so the, the you wouldn't have that same balancing of the two aspects. Uh, I also hear uh, something else in the same passage. He seems to be saying uh, to me that there is a residual existence of uh, the relation between humankind and the magical universe, uh, even in uh, the modern world. Yeah, I think that's right, um, in the sense that um, each of these processes of differentiation, um, it doesn't exhaust the reality that it's undergoing the differentiation. So um, magic is differentiated into techniques and religion, but that doesn't mean that magic is exhausted by that differentiation. Um, there is uh, still um, magical reality is still something that subsists um, uh, even after that differentiation. And the same, of course, applies to all the subsequent uh, differentiation. So, uh, you know, technical reality subsists even after the differentiation into theory and practice um, and uh, and so on. And this might be a point uh, to bring up another another term that um, that came up uh, a little while ago that I, I forgot to um, uh, sort of make note of um, on at the bottom of uh, at the bottom of 173. Um, just the last line where he describes the two different or the different phases as uh, he says each separated reality is the symbol of the other, just as each phase is the symbol of the other phase or phases. So he's using the term symbol here as uh, he often does in other works. Um, he's using it in the uh, classical Greek sense uh, that you find in Homer, for example. Um, so a symbol in this sense was uh, a sort of token that uh, like you take a pebble or or something like that and break it in half and then um, the two pieces fit together afterwards and uh, this was used for um, um, hospitality relationships so um, if you were the guest of someone else then you would create this symbol the, these two pieces um, and then that relationship would be passed down to um, the descendants of the people that had that relationship um, and then they would use that symbol to uh, like the, the two pieces of the pebble that fit together um, would be used to recognize the existence of that relationship in future generations. Um, so that's the that's what he means by symbol in that context. And then so if we go back to um, where we were on page 175. Um, so each of these um, what he described as these properly balanced relationships. So um, re uh, the relationship between 
technical thought and religion, for example, that are both at the same level of the of, uh, differentiation in the genetic process, that would be a symbolic relation in that sense. The two pieces fit together. Oh, I, I had never really heard of that notion of, of symbol. Um, you said it was from Homeric philosophy? Um, well, I mean, it's not, I guess, uh, clear whether you would want to describe Homer as, as um, a you know, philosophical writer, but um, um, it's it's used in, in the Homeric text in, in the Iliad and the Odyssey, um, this idea of a, a token that is passed on from one generation to the other that uh, you can be fit together with the other um, portion of the token and that represents the, uh, the relationship of hospitality. Wow, yeah, that that's incredibly fascinating. I think I think there are there are people who use the term Homeric philosophy, although um, knowing that Homer was a poet and not philosopher in in a more substantial sense. Right. I mean, there there are you know philosophical concepts about uh, you know the relationship of human or the human mode of being in the world or something like that that you can draw out of. Um, non-philosophical texts and and you know homer's works in particular the you know the way that they present a um they have a, a very distinct um presentation of a, a certain mode of being of, of human beings and uh, a reality um uh you know the human reality that we can draw out of those works um so yeah i, I don't think there's anything um, necessarily wrong in, in uh talking about homeric philosophy Um, so we're almost out of time. Um, let me just see how much we have left in the chapter. Oh, it's almost done. Or this section. Oh, yeah. Not this section, sorry, yes. Um, so maybe we can try to finish the section in the next nine, ten minutes or so. Um, would you like me to read this or would like someone else like to? Yeah, you can go ahead. Uh, it doesn't seem like anyone else is dying to read. <laughs> okay, sure. Um, this is precisely the, wait, yeah, this is, that's where we are, right? This is precisely? Yeah, that's right. This is precisely the goal to be attained. The mission of reflexive thought is to lift upright and perfect the successive waves of Genesis through which the primitive unity of man's relation with the world splits in two and comes to sustain both science and ethics through technics and religion, between which aesthetic thought develops. In these successive splits, the primitive unity would be lost if science and ethics could not come back together at the end of Genesis. Philosophical thinking inserts itself between theoretical thought and practical thought by way of an ex extension of both aesthetic thought and the original magical unity. Now, in order for the unity of scientific knowledge and ethics to be possible in philosophical thought, the sources of science and ethics must be at the same level, complementary to each other, and have arrived at the same point of genetic development. The genesis of technics and of religion conditions that of science and of ethics. Philosophy is itself its own condition, for as soon as reflexive thinking has begun, it has the power to perfect whichever of the genuses that has not fully accomplished itself by becoming aware of the sense of the, of the genetic process itself. Hence, in order to be able to pose the philosophical problem of the relations between knowledge and ethics in a profound way, one would first have to complete the genesis of technics and the genesis of religious thought, or at the very least for this task would be infinite, to know the real direction, sense, of these two genuses. 
Uh, here, here it seems that the the, the mission of reflexive thought is uh, on par with um, his his meta meta philosophical claims about the position of of philosophical thought. Um, when he says philosophy is itself its own condition, um, and uh, this this kind of um, meta philosophical distinction, I think, is is fairly ordinary to think of philosophy as a kind of ep epistemic uh, state in which which is necessarily reflexive, and or kind of turning back on itself. Yeah, I think here the he's using that term reflexive um, in the sense that um, it's the this process of genesis or this genetic process um, itself becomes the object of uh, of the genetic process in thought. Um, so philosophy is one of the stages of the of the genetic process, but it also reconstitutes the whole genetic process uh, in thought, um, which is what he's doing here in this book is is you know setting up those stages. Um, and uh, by doing that, it can um, uh, it can uh, sort of set out the directions um, in which that thought is, or sorry, in which the genetic process is developing. And just a, a minor translation note again. Um, so they they put in in brackets the word sens um, because it has. Um, multiple meanings in French. Um, so it, it has the meaning of meaning, like the sens mode, the meaning of a, a word. Um, but then also sens can mean direction, like the direction of, of travel or the direction of a road or something like that. Um, so both of those meanings, like I think they're both at work in, in this passage. So there's the, the meaning of a genetic process. Um, and there's also the direction in which that genetic process is is um, un, is being carried out. So, so would this um, that second that second notion of sense um, would would you say that that's similar to the way that we use orientation in or direction in English? Yeah, direction is a is a, a perfectly adequate uh, translation. Orientation maybe a little bit less in the sense that um, orientation has a, a sort of navigational connotation to it. Um, but uh, yeah, I think direction works fine. Okay, okay, that that's very helpful. Um, sense is sense is uh, oftentimes a word which I I um, find widely diverges in. In meaning, um, uh, of, I, it reminds me of the the sense and reference distinction in Fre Frege specifically, and the, the interpretational problems in um, in approaching that subject. Yeah, it's often. I mean, this is a, a sort of a, a key philosophical term in, in a lot of authors, and so it's um, is always uh, important to translate it. Um, uh, accurately, but also um, difficult to get all the correct nuances when you're passing from one language to another. Oh, and uh, yeah, so Brick has posted a um, uh, a video from YouTube on the on the symbol on the uh, the token that uh, you split in half and then use to uh, recognize the counterpart. Um, so yeah, we can check that out after uh, we finish here in a, a couple minutes. Um, 
So I don't know if anyone has any uh, last comments before we finish. Okay, so in that case, um, I guess we can stop here and um, we can pick up at section two uh, next time. Um, yeah, and so yeah, same time, uh, I think works for, for me and hopefully it works for everyone else. Yeah, hoping so, yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you everyone for joining in today, and um, I'll see you all next week then. Um, bye for now. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Thank you, and bye. Thank you. Bye, everyone.